And tonight, let's take our Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 1. Everybody have an outline for tonight? I think we have some extras. Anybody not pick up one? And to let you know, it's an outline with all the answers already on it, all right? So there's no PowerPoint, but there are some texts of Scripture that uh, are just on that rather than, um, than us turning to them. We'll be in Colossians. There are some other texts, so if you don't have one, if you have access to one, that's great because we will be uh, referring to them in just a moment. So tonight, we turn our attention to the final mark as we look at what are marks of a healthy church. What does a healthy church look like? What are some features that should be evident, or at least to which we should be growing And we've looked at a number of topics. We've looked at worship. We've looked at theology, within theology. We looked at the importance of of preaching, the importance of what we call regenerate church membership, and that was then taking us to the the mark of membership. Uh, We looked at the issue of growth. What is real growth? What does biblical growth look like? Uh, We looked at the issue of, of service. And uh, how a church should be should be a a serving church. So we've looked we've looked at a number of aspects of a healthy church. And so tonight we we consider our last topic. Not that there aren't others. Not that we couldn't spend nearly an indefinite amount of time on such a topic. Uh, but we turn to our last one not because it's the least important, but simply because you've got to preach these in some kind of order. Tonight, we turn our attention to leadership. Now, I would suggest there are a few topics out in the world and in our culture today that that are hotter topics than leadership. This isn't just true in church life. This is true in the business world. This has not always been the case. Really, this is kind of a phenomenon of the 20th century, probably with the rise of industrialization, the rise of corporations, Uh, Really, before the 20th century, certainly before the 19th, you don't find people writing books, at least not in in any detailed and academic way, on leadership. You might find biographies that identify important leaders, but you're not really finding academic, intentional study on the idea of leadership itself. The 20th century this topic blows up, and, and now all major institutions of higher education, along with, say, having you know, a, a medical school and a business school and a nursing school and an engineering school, also have a leadership school. Harvard, for example. Harvard, for years and years, has had their Harvard School of Business. They also now have a school of leadership. This is now mainstream, academic kind of discussion that entire programs are devoted to it. And this is even true in the church. I I would argue other than certain theologians and pastors writing books on how to be a pastor, you don't really see the topic of leadership discussed. That's also a fairly recent phenomenon. But nowadays, and there's all kinds of books on leadership that you can read, some that are clearly Christian, some written by Christians that seem like they could be written by anybody, 
Seminaries now have entire degree programs. You can go all the way up to a PhD and get a PhD in leadership studies. It's a big topic. In fact, I would suggest, this is anecdotal, but from what I've seen, when I get book catalogs and I hear about new releases and I hear this well-known podcaster or this well-known preacher talking about whatever books they're reading, I am telling you for every theology book I hear referenced, I hear ten leadership books referenced. By the way, I'm not suggesting that's a good thing. Nevertheless, the topic of leadership does matter. It does matter that we find what is clearly a biblical view here of leadership, and in particular, as it pertains to the life of the church. I mean, on one level, this is a fine topic to be talking about because every organization, whether a business or a church, in order to function, needs leaders. Every organization has leaders. Unhealthy organizations have leaders. Healthy organizations have leaders. So it's true for a church. It's true for a business. But I think it's important that as a church, we understand what does the Bible say about leadership in the church. Again, I am told all the time, this is what I need to be reading. There are conferences over and over again that tell me how to make myself a better leader. I'm told that if I would just study the model of Microsoft or Starbucks or McDonald's, that I'll, I'll be a better pastor. I've, I, there are books that say this, by the way. I've heard pastors say this. If I read books about McDonald's, I'll be a better pastor. Just let that sink in your heart for a minute, all right? Here's what's ironic. In light of the fact that there is now more information and and resources available for churches than ever on leadership, have you ever heard of a time when churches seem to be more dysfunctional? Isn't it ironic at this day and age when we should have all these resources and all these guys who are telling me that I should be reading all these books by Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and this is what I should be doing in order to learn how to be the best possible leader that I can be and yet some of these very same pastors are no longer leading their congregations. Have you kept up with how many high profile guys seem to be falling by the wayside? some of whom have books themselves. They wrote on leadership. Nationally known figures, for whatever reason, perhaps it's, a, it's, it's issues related to sexual immorality. For some, it has been issues related to uh, financial mismanagement. And, and then for others, it, it, it's just this inability to lead without being some kind of a bully. So how do we deal with this? How should a church be led? If we're going to be a healthy church, how are we going to be that healthy church? We all know stories of churches that are facing serious dysfunction because a pastor has decided to act like an autocrat, right? Like he's the king of the castle, and whatever he says goes. We also know churches that are dealing with dysfunction because a minority of people have decided they're not going to come under the authority of a godly leader, and instead they want to make all the decisions. 
In other words, the problem is as easily found in the pulpit as it is found in the pew. And perhaps it's because we've not really developed a biblical understanding of who should be leading. How should the church be managed? So, so again, it's not a surprise that we come to this topic, and this is a fitting one to close on. The final mark of a healthy church that we're going to look at is a healthy church understands the importance of healthy leadership. So we're going to look at four ideas. It's going to take us a few weeks to do this. Four ideas that I think outline for us how a church should view leadership. And and we're going to be talking about a lot of different issues. We're probably not going to get to some of the, the, the hotter topics, say the role of elders, relationship between pastor, elder, and the Bible, um, how that then looks in the life of the church. That'll be a few weeks. Um, but but th- these are the kind of things we'll be asking. Who is in charge of the church? What, what is the role of, say, pastor slash elder? What is the role of the deacon? What is the role of the congregation? And bottom line is, what does the Bible have to say about, it, about any of this? About all of this? Because what, what really matters, as we've said from the beginning... We want a church, we want to be a church that brings God the greatest glory, right? Isn't that what we all would want? We would all want to be that, and that's not going to happen if a church is not submissive to His Word. So that's what, that's what should matter the most to us. So, what are these features then of a healthy church as it considers leadership? Well, number one, first point there on your outline, on your notes seems reasonable that we would begin here. First place to begin is the supremacy of Christ. The supremacy of Christ. In other words, the most important feature of leadership in the Bible, in our theological construct about church life, is no human being is the most important figure in church life. That's the number one truth. When it comes to leadership... No person is the most important leader. That the the clear biblical picture of what's expected of the church is that the church is living, functioning, worshiping in full submission to the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. Put it simply, Christ should be reigning over His church as Lord. So what is our first expectation? Me as a pastor, congregation, deacons, whoever else may be functioning in a leadership capacity in church life, the number one requirement that should be placed on all of us is that we are living in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Christ then is supreme. Now the Bible describes this supremacy of Christ in relationship to His church with a number of images, but two of them in particular that I think are significant. The church is referred to as the bride of Christ, therefore Jesus being the, the groom. And though we think of that in terms of merely, you know, wedding day kind of imagery, you know, the language that John just read from Ephesians 5, and we'll pick up on the imagery at the beginning of that text here in just a minute, it's also this imagery of, of husband Wife, So this does speak to the leadership of Christ. But, but I would argue that, that the, the image that perhaps speaks most clearly to this is Jesus Christ as the head of the church. 
as the head of the church. So, take a look with me, Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. We'll read 15 through 18, Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. Or the thrones, or dominions, or principalities, or powers, all things were created through Him and for Him. He is before all things. And in Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, firstborn from the dead, that in all things He may have the preeminence. Now this text, especially here in Colossians, even a few verses before it and a few verses after it, this is considered one of the classic texts describe for us the nature of Christ. And indeed, there's some pretty weighty theological concepts that that you find in it. So he opens up in verse 15 saying that he is the image of the invisible God. So right, right off the bat, Paul is making a very strong, pointed point. Uh, given the perhaps early formation of some theological heresy going on in Colossae, Paul is saying when you talk about Christ... You're not talking about somebody who was similar to God. You're not talking about somebody who was almost all like God. Jesus is the exact representation of God. What he means by this is, when he says he is the image of the invisible God, this means Jesus is complete in his divinity. He's not a lesser divine than God. He, in, his, in His nature, He is the fullness of God manifest. So He is the image of the, first, of the invisible God. Then when it says He's the firstborn over all creation, this doesn't mean that Jesus. we know Jesus was born of a virgin. It doesn't mean He was created. And I point this out because if you run into Jehovah's Witnesses, they'll use a verse like this. They'll use actually this very verse at times, to say, see there, Jesus was the firstborn. So there was a time when Jesus did not exist. That's not what the text means. Firstborn sometimes may indicate, yes, the one who was literally the firstborn. At other times, it's merely a statement of preeminence. The premier, the first, the one in first place. And so this is what is, this is, what is stated here. He is the firstborn overall creation. He's described as the one who is responsible for creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. talks about that which is invisible, that which is visible, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers. Then the last phrase of verse 16 is significant. All things were created through Him and for Him. Created through Him and for Him. So He is responsible in creation. He has given creative responsibility here for every atom in the universe. Every atom in the universe. But it's not just He is responsible as Creator. It says that these things are for Him. They are for Him. So whether it's creation, whether it's the created, 
All things then are created by Him and for Him. And then when it says He is before all things and in Him all things consist, it's another profound statement about his, that He's eternal, that He is unchanging, uh, that, and, and that all of the universe holds together because Jesus holds it together. To think about it maybe metaphorically, symbolically, if for some reason Jesus were to ever open His hand and let the universe go, it disintegrates into nothing. It would disintegrate into nothing. He holds it all together. Now, why is all of this important? Well, I'd argue because He's really, Paul's really leading then to an important principle in verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. And then then it has that ending statement uh, saying, He's the beginning, the firstborn uh, from the dead. Reference to resurrection there. That in all things He may have the preeminence. In other words, all of this grand lofty theology about Christ, not only is it going to serve to make Paul's point in the next text about how in Christ there is redemption, freedom from sin, but he's also saying when it comes to life in the church... We need to recognize that who is the premier authority? Who is the head of the church? The pastor is not the head of the church. The pope is for sure not the head of the church. Jesus stands alone as the head of the church. So understand what this image means. It doesn't just mean he's at the top, like the CEO. All right? So if you, if you think about traditional business model structures of leadership, right? you might have the CEO, then you may have the, the board of some form, maybe you have you know, lesser uh, uh, executive officers of some kind over finance or human resources, so that you have this leadership tree. You've all seen these, right? It's not like Jesus being the head means he's at the top of the leadership model paradigm. For Jesus to be the head means none of this exists without Him. None of it exists without Him. We can't do church without Christ. Put it this way. You would be able to do church without Christ as well as you'd be able to drive home without your head on. Alright? Anybody driving home without your head on? The answer is no, by the way. I know you all look at me like, I don't know, he's tricky. I don't know, Sunday nights, he does tricky things. He's had a nap. He's well-rested. He's probably had some kind of ice cream chocolate thing, all right? So I don't know what he's doing, all right? Okay, no, it's, it's really that simple. This is the imagery of the head. And so that through the head, all things are energized. All things have life and purpose. Think about it in your own body. All the rest of the parts of the body operate because of your brain, right? Because of your head, because it's in operation. So Christ stands as the energizing element to church life. As the head, it means he exercises lordship, and it also means he's the giver of life to the church. Christ stands as he who is supreme over all things in church life. This means quite simply, no matter what anybody else thinks, he is in charge. He is in charge of his church. A couple of other verses here just to consider. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. <clears throat> it's a text we've looked at more than once where Paul talks about you know, the, the, the offices he's given to the church uh, so that those such as pastors, teachers can help build the church up 
so that they may engage in ministry, so that we all may grow up into Christ's likeness. And so he then says here, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by whatever joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now, what's the important energizing feature here? Does my arm work because it's connected to my shoulder? Is my shoulder responsible for the work of my hands? No. In other words, all the parts of the body work because all the parts are connected to the head. All the parts of church, leadership, congregation, whatever whatever is involved in the life of the church, all of it works provided all of the parts properly related to the head. This, by the way, is why we spend a lot of time talking about members should be actually saved people. Shocking, right? But unfortunately, I'm concerned if the rapture happened now, there would be folks who would show up next Sunday. I hope it's none of you. All right? Okay? But they would. I mean, that would, that would, that would happen. There are a lot of folks on roles of churches, I'm afraid, who are not actually what we call regenerate. And it could, it could help answer why churches can at times be so dysfunctional. Uh, so, so this, is, this is what matters most, that we're rightly connected to the head. Look at Ephesians 5. I'm going to go ahead and make a disclaimer here. I'm not talking about wives submitting to your husbands. I'm not scared of the topic. I've preached on it more than once, all right? So, I'm not a coward. It's just not the point that I'm making. And in fact, the secondary point that he makes is what we're making here. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. If you have questions about what that means, wives, then you'll have to talk to anybody else. All right, no, no, I'm just kidding. I'd be glad to talk about that. You'd be glad to talk to my wife, though I'm warning you, you want a hard word, it's going to come from my wife. All right, I'm just telling you, uh, don't think you'll find uh, a compassionate ear about, oh, doesn't submission to husbands, doesn't that seem so outdated? Uh, Anyway, nonetheless, so what he's getting at here is the nature of this relationship says something about the relationship of the church to Christ. Christ is the head. Christ is the one to whom we are to give our faithfulness and fidelity to. Then I just give you the, the beginning of the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18. In fact, I didn't give you enough. I gave you dot, 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 all right? But all authority is given unto me where? In heaven and on earth. Let me ask you a question. Is there anywhere exempt from that phrase? (laughs) In this context, what does the word all mean in Greek? It just means all. It just means all. All authority. Every bit of authority. All that is contained in authority. What does that then mean about me or about you when it comes to leading the church? If you and I have any authority, it's because it's been conferred upon us by Jesus Himself. 
you do recognize there are two kinds of authority. There's the authority that, that a being possesses in and of his nature. This is called intrinsic authority. I know this, that's great, right? You came on Sunday night, you get the big words. In, in other words, there's a kind of authority that exists within the individual. No human being has intrinsic authority. Only God has this. In other words, only God has authority that exists as a feature of his nature. All other kinds of authority are then granted. That's called extrinsic authority. Let me give you an example. A police officer. Does a police officer have authority uh, all the time, everywhere? Does he exercise it necessarily? No. Right? Put him in the car, lights, uniform, badge. Now you're talking authority. Now, does he possess that authority as a piece of his nature? Is he born with the authority of a police officer? No, it's conferred upon him. All right. So I I say this because if anybody in the church has authority, pastor, elder, uh, anybody else, if there's any authority in the church, it's not because the individual possesses it as a right of his nature. It's only because Christ has conferred it. Because all authority is given to him in heaven and on earth. And do you want to see the best example of this? Maybe just lived out a bit practically. Read Revelation chapters 2 and 3. You know, when Christ speaks to each of the seven churches, do you remember the warning given to them? At least many of them. That if, the, if they don't change, what was going to happen? Their candle was going to be snuffed out, right? In one case, they were going to be vomited out of God's mouth. Wow, how'd you like to send her to that preaching, right? Vomited out of God's mouth. So, who, ha- who is an authority? Revelation 2 and 3 makes it clear. Christ has authority in His church. This, this is the fitting and appropriate place to begin when, when we talk about uh, who is in charge of the church. Who is in charge of the church? Christ is in charge of the church. And our number one concern should be not any kind of fidelity to the way it used to be done or past generations or uh, denominations or personal preference. And listen, I understand that, that a lot of pastors can beat up a lot of churches because of personal preference. Believe me, I know my kind, all right? And I know we can, we can as easily put the garb of spirituality on the stuff we do. Man, we can do it in a heartbeat, Right? We can be fast talkers. I get get that. I get that. It can also happen, though, by the way, to church members. The same thing can happen to those in the pews. What is absolutely essential is is that it's not not my church, not your church. It's not Granddaddy's church. I actually had this conversation one time, not long after I came here. I've never told anybody this story. I had a man call me, then sent me emails. He claimed to have a connection to this church. He named off somebody's name that was his grandfather. I didn't recognize it. I don't even remember it now. But it's nobody here, clearly. I didn't know who this person was or who he said his granddaddy was. Apparently, he'd heard me preach a couple of times. He'd been to our website, and he called to fuss at me for the way that I preach the gospel. There's a lot of things you can complain about. Anyway, all right, so I don't cotton to that. In other words, if you do that, you may get a little bit of pushback. Shocking, right? You may get a little bit of pushback. And here's the comment he made to me. He said, my grandfather would be rolling over in his grave to think that kind of preaching was coming out of his 
church. And I said, sir, I don't care what your granddaddy is doing in his grave. It is not his church. It's not mine. It's not yours. And make no doubt about this, church. When we stand in glory, we will not answer to one another for how we were stewards of this fellowship of believers. But we will answer to Jesus Christ. We will answer to Him. He stands as supreme over the church. He's in charge. So how are we organized? Are we organized in such a way that we recognize the supremacy of Christ in all things? Are we as individual believers submitting ourselves to our head? Are we doing all things that He has commanded us? Are we then teaching all things that He has commanded us? Are we living according to His Lordship? All right, let's, let me just hit on then this second feature, and we'll flesh it out more um, in a couple of weeks. Because next Sunday night, I'm telling you, you do not want to miss... Some folks, they hear Sunday night, there's going to be a concert or music, maybe a few folks may not come. Who, who was here the Sunday night before Easter? It's glorious. All right, who was here before Christmas? I mean, absolutely glorious. You, do not want to, you don't want to miss Sunday night. I'm just telling you, all right? If you do, um, then I would argue you're not living under the Lordship of Christ. Ooh, how is that for turning the needle, Right? That is abusing the pulpit. However, the church has decided that one of the ways we want to honor His supremacy is doing so with music next Sunday night. So I do think you're obligated to come. All right, so you should come and we should worship together. So in two weeks, we'll flesh this out a little bit more. But the second feature then of effective church leadership, so we understand the supremacy of Christ, but then we should appreciate the authority of the congregation. The authority of the congregation. I know that this may shock you to hear me say this, but it shouldn't because I think I've taught on it more than once. The primary, then, earthly authority for the stewardship, management, and administration of the church is the church. So What? Huh? You just repeated yourself. In other words, the, the primary place... Where authority is exercised is in the context of the congregation, I believe. This is a form of church government that we practice here at Tabernacle called congregationalism. And what we mean by that, and I'll give you the options, we'll run through them, they're there in your notes. See, historically you've got three. You've got Episcopalianism, Presbyterianism, and Congregationalism. All three are different forms of church government. Some of these, like Episcopalianism, recognize as, say, a single head. There's, there's a, a bishop who's then in charge. The people who are under his charge had no say in the fact that he was put in charge. This is the Catholic church. In other words, when the pope becomes the pope, are, are they do, doing business meetings at Catholic churches all across the world? Does the church get to... Does the Catholic Church here in New Bern get a vote at the Vatican? No. It is self-perpetuating, right? Because the school of cardinals, college of cardinals, they are the ones who are selecting the next pope. By the way, any Christian technically could be voted in. That is true, by the way. Any Christian on the planet 
uh, provided they meet a few other requirements, could technically be it. Though I don't think in modern times they've ever appointed a pope who was not, a mem- was not already a cardinal. I don't think they've ever done that. So, but this is it. So the, you know, so the church, you know, the Catholic Church here in New Bern has, they have no authority. They have no authority to decide who's going to lead them. That is, that is an appointment. Now, if the folks here in New Bern don't like the priest, they can complain about it. But they can only complain about it to the one over the priest, and that singular individual can make a decision. So, that's Episcopalian. Presbyterianism is a bit broader. It has a multiplicity of elders, and we are congregational, and we'll walk through this again in a couple of weeks. But, but fundamental to what I think to Baptist churches is that we are congregational, which means at the end of the day, congregations are making decisions. However, this should be balanced. Congregations are making decisions in that the congregation is saying, yes, we want this guy to be our pastor, these people to serve as pastors. But that position does come with leadership expectations. In other words, we're not having a business meeting to vote on every little thing. Nobody wants to do that, right? Nobody wants to do that. Nobody. Well, I take that back. There are some churches that I think want to do that. There are. There are some churches that seem like they have business meetings once a week. Certainly some that do it once a month. Um, but, you know, Tabernacle has decided to function differently, but the congregation has made decisions. Nobody came along nine years ago. David Phelps from the Atlantic Baptist Association did not bring me in front of Tabernacle nine years ago and say, this is your guy. You all formed a search committee. That search committee then eventually interviewed me, brought me here. You all interviewed me for hours. <laughs> My back hurts just thinking about that day. All right, for hours. Then you all voted. In other words, I am your fault. All right? You can't blame anybody else. You can't blame the Southern Baptist Convention. You can't blame the Baptist State Convention of North Carolina. You can't blame the Atlantic Baptist Association. All right? Uh, we're, the, we're, we're in this uh, because we, you made an autonomous decision. So, congregationalism. This is what I think is the best way for a church to be run. Now, I'll argue for this in a couple of weeks. Why I think this is the best biblical model uh, for how churches are to run. I think it is primarily the image we see in the New Testament itself. Though, I think we do see, perhaps, uh, vestiges, smatterings, little bitty bits uh, of Presbyterianism. I'll explain that when we get to it as well uh, in, in, in a couple of weeks. Don't hold on to this outline. There will inevitably be more added to it. Uh, but I think for now, we've got plenty to think about, and primarily it should be that issue of the supremacy of Christ. Because again, when it comes down to it, this is the, the truest mark of a healthy church, is it not? Are we living in submission to Christ? It's the mark of a healthy believer. Are you living in submission to the Lordship of Christ? Uh, you were bought with a price. You are not your own. You are not in charge of yourself. As I've said before, the most important issue you can settle is the issue of authority. Who is in charge? And it's Christ. Christ should be in charge of me, of you, and of us. And I think we find ourselves living and being a healthy church uh, when we submit to His supremacy. All right, let's pray together. Father God, we thank You again for gathering us. We thank You for this time in Your Word. And I pray that we would be a church uh, that is living under the supremacy of Christ. That we recognize Christ as our head. And that all that we do would, would be done in connection to Him. And we would recognize that not only is He supreme over us, uh, but he is, he is the life through which the church then 
uh, happens. And may we find ourselves rightly related to Christ so that as we are related to one another in this church, we do so in a way that is, that is beneficial as a fellowship of believers and glorifying to you as the church you've designed us to be. We thank you for the week that is before us. Uh, by faith, we know that you are with us and that you are going ahead of us. We trust our lives into your hands. Use us for your great and glorious purposes. Use us as witnesses for the sake of your gospel, that those who are lost and in darkness may hear the light and come to faith in Christ Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.